Well, good morning, Christ City, East Vancouver. Uh, Remaining standing, uh, would you read God's word with me from Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. Uh, There we read this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Still standing, let's pray together. Father, we begin this morning with a confession. We confess that it is often difficult for us to reconcile the gentle and lowly Jesus with the Jesus who will return to judge and make war. And yet, we believe that your son is not divided that he is one in purpose and heart. And so help us today. Help us today not only to accept the work of Jesus upon his return, but to learn to rejoice in it. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, the prayer I just prayed leads us into the tension of this morning. For 11 weeks, Heath and I and others have labored to show you that the heart of Christ, from before creation to crucifixion to his current intercession, has never changed, has never wavered. That his heart is a steady beating reality throughout time. It's never changed. And then we come to today. And our topic for today, and for many people, what I'm saying will threaten to undermine and undo all of what we've said over the past uh, 11 weeks. See, today we're talking about the return of Jesus, the glorious, frightening return of Jesus. And we cannot talk about the return of Jesus without also mentioning that he returns to judge, that Jesus returns as a divine warrior to judge. See, our issue, and to speak to our attention a bit, our issue is that the word love and judge exists on two sides of our current cultural spectrum. There is love and being loving and tolerance over here, and over on this side of the cultural spectrum is judge and judgmentalism and being intolerance, and never the two shall those sides meet. They're always, it seems, forever separated. How do we, how do we reconcile in the person of Jesus the truth of his steadily beating heart of love and the Scripture's unequivocal witness? We can't miss this. The Scripture's unequivocal witness to the fact that Jesus returns to judge. How is his loving and his judging to be reconciled? To answer that, I want to persuade you this morning of one very simple yet very profound truth. And it'll come up on the screen for you to consider. And it's this. 
for Jesus to be our gentle and lowly shepherd. He must also be our good and our perfect judge. Our good, our perfect, and powerful judge. I'll aim, you, I'll aim to persuade you of this as we unpack Revelation 19, 11 to 16 through uh, three headings. The first is justice. The second heading will be judgment. And the third will be mercy. Justice, judgment, and mercy. And so first, let me encourage you wherever you are around the city to open your Bibles. This is important. Open your Bibles. If you have a physical Bible, open it now to Revelation 19. And we're going to read just verse 11 together. Look at verse 11 with me. I know that right now across the city, Christ of East Vancouver are opening their Bibles and reading the same verse. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Just to give you the context in which our passage comes this morning, our passage comes on the heels of a section of John's revelation where John has just finished talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. There's just going to be this great feast. There's going to be this huge party where we will celebrate forever and finally the union of the church, the bride, and Jesus, the groom, who is the Lamb. The Lamb who was slain for us. This is the language we find in Revelation. And then we read, turning from the marriage supper of the Lamb, what we just read at the beginning of our time together. Reading through Revelation 19, if we're watching TV, is like a sudden changing of channels. One second, we're talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's like a romantic drama. The next second, it seems as if the channel suddenly changes. And suddenly, we're witnessing apocalyptic action, right? Two very different genres. But I think even in this transition from the marriage supper of the Lamb to now seeing Jesus as a divine warrior, I think that you and I are meant to learn something. See, there is no peace. There is no feasting in security without justice. Uh, To quote a popular protest chant of late, no justice, no peace, right? You've heard that. I've heard that. No justice, no peace. And long before this was shouted by protesters, it has been the shouted refrain of the entire scriptures. But scripture not only records our cries for justice and cries for justice, it proposes a solution to the problem of injustice. It's the person and work of Jesus. Let me explain. The the hope of God's people from the earliest pages of the Bible has always been that a Messiah would come, a Savior would come, and bring about peace or shalom through the implementation of justice. Listen to what Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah, the Messiah who we now know to be Jesus. Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah 42 verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Listen, I have put my spirit upon him, and now he will bring forth, what? Justice to the nations. Justice always precedes peace. Uh, Not only does the Bible tell us this, we know this, don't we? Intuitively, there is something 
unnatural and unnerving and not comforting at all about sitting down in peace when there is no justice. In fact, we read in the Old Testament that a hallmark of false prophets is crying out peace, 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 when in fact there is no peace in the land, when justice, or rather injustice, is rampant. Jesus, our good shepherd, has come to bring peace through his administration of justice. And what does the justice of Jesus look like? Well, we find some clues in Revelation 19. This could be a sermon on its own. But in Revelation 19, we're told that Jesus is sitting on a white horse. In fact, not only is Jesus sitting on a white horse, but the army in which he leads is full of these white horses, these symbols of sure victory. See, the justice that Jesus brings is a sure justice. He will not fail. There will be no miscarriage of justice when it comes to judge Jesus. We also read, look with me, that he is called, what? Faithful and true. That Jesus never wavers in his love for God. He never compromises. Where earthly judges compromise, where they waver in their love for God, Jesus never does. He is and always speaks and always goes to war for what is true. In fact, Jesus is, he says in John's Gospel, the truth. He himself. Who among us then, just this small glimpse of Jesus' justice, who among us then would oppose to this Jesus showing up in our midst, in the midst of our current, right now, injustice? See, all summer long, our screens, my screens, your screens, have been filled with images of protest. Images of horrific things being done by those on both sides of the aisle, both sides of the street. Images that will shape our generation and others for decades to come. And can you imagine with me, imagine this, visualize this with me, can you imagine with me suddenly someone appearing who knew the heart and mind of each person perfectly, totally, completely, and knowing all these things, administer justice in these highly complex and difficult situations faithfully and truly, capital T, truly. See, maybe now you're beginning to get a sense of why for Jesus to be our gentle and lowly shepherd, he also must be our good and perfect and powerful judge. But at this point, we have to stop and acknowledge something I've intentionally overlooked. All justice, all justice comes with judgment. All justice, which I hope we can agree is an act of love, all this justice comes with judgment. A, a set of moral standards by which we declare one person innocent and the other person guilty. Make no mistake about this. All cries for justice presuppose some form of judgment. All cries of justice assume that there are those who will be wrong and those who will be right. Now, in a recent article entitled A Biblical Critique of Secular Justice and Critical Theory, which I would really commend to you, it's by a guy named Tim Keller, who many of you are familiar with. 
In this recent article, Keller opens by saying this, and I think it's insightful. There have never been stronger calls for justice than those we are hearing today. But seldom do those issuing the calls acknowledge that currently there are competing visions of justice, often at sharp variance, and that none of them have achieved anything like a cultural consensus. There are competing views of justice and therefore competing criteria by which we judge one another. And currently, the criteria for judging one another is curated by a privileged few, though who exactly belongs to that group grows smaller every day. And and I think rightly, these privileged few recognize that the wages of sin are death. See, extreme responses to injustice, extreme responses to injustice are a reminder that we are people created in the image of God, a God who hates injustice. And so without saying yes, and without affirming the violence that has been done, in fact, we would condemn those things, we can at the same time acknowledge that extreme responses to injustice flow out of who we are as people created in the image of God. There is something wrong, terribly wrong, within justice. We, we know this. Our culture knows this. But where this current understanding of justice goes wrong is that in occupying the judgment throne, and and fundamentally it does this, it occupies the, the seat of the judge, it is sitting in the wrong place. See, foundational to a biblical view of justice and therefore judgment is first and foundationally recognizing that outside of Christ we are dead in our sin. We are worthy ourselves of God's wrath. That before we are victims, we are first and more foundationally perpetrators of injustice. And in Revelation 19, we see in no uncertain terms that Jesus, this divine warrior, is the agent by which God will execute his wrath upon those who oppose him. Listen to this text again. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. I think on one level, we get and understand the idea that for Jesus to be our good shepherd, he must also be our good and powerful and perfect judge. We acknowledge, don't we, that there is evil out there. Systems and people uh, perpetrating evil out there. There are wolves to be protected from. And let's face it, let's go one step further, let's face it, if he is not also our good judge, then ultimately he is an impotent deity not worthy of our worship. Why run to Jesus' arms if those arms are not strong and firm, if they're not also just? 
But while we are eagerly aware of the evil out there, we are less keen to acknowledge as Christians and as a culture the evil in here. The evil out there is real. Do not mishear me. But we are less keen to acknowledge as Christians and as a culture the evil in here. And the evil in here, if we're consistent, is an evil that requires judgment. It's an evil that, if we're consistent, needs to be rooted out, needs to be destroyed, needs to be subject to exactly what we see Jesus doing in Revelation 19. It's not just in them. And it's not just those people. As Christians, it is first and foundationally in us, in you, and in me. And so we also have to ask, who among us will stand on the last day? If this is the case, if evil in me is so pervasive, who among us will stand on the last day before Jesus, the divine warrior, and say, don't worry about me, I'm good. And David asked the very same question in Psalm 24, verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? This is point number three, mercy. Do you remember those feasting? Those feasting at the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation right before our text. Right before Jesus bursts onto the scene with a robe dipped in blood and a sword protruding from his mouth. Do you remember those people? What separates those feasting from those fearing? What separates those at the party from those who will be the object of God's wrath through Jesus, the divine warrior? I, I think it's really simple. We read in Revelation 19, verse 9, or we read, rather, right before our text today, these words. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, here's the thing about the Good Shepherd. He doesn't force himself upon you. And here's what I mean by that. Before the foundations of the world, God has always existed. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a community of love. And it was as an overflow of that community of love that God, through the Son, made all things, you, me, everything we see, this entire universe, as an overflow of that community of love. But ruined by sin and selfishness, ruined by sin and selfishness, God mercifully sends a Son who created all things to redeem all things, to buy back all things through his Son's life. And through his son's death, and through his son's miraculous resurrection. And now, having ascended to the right hand of the Father, the Son, who is praying for us now, the Son will return again, and he will judge the living and the dead. And he will make all things, all things, again, all things brand new. And none of this is what we deserve. Not a single ounce is what we deserve. We deserve to reap the full wages of sin. And the full wages of sin, as we've quoted, quoted already, is death. And instead we find Jesus 
our gentle and lowly shepherd, opening up a path of mercy and grace. We trust in his shed blood so that ours will not be shed. Now what will you do? Will you accept Jesus as your king, your gentle and lowly king, but your king nonetheless? See, the whole series, all 11 weeks of this series, has been driving to this one point. All that we've said about Jesus has been said as an invitation. All that we've said has not been said as mere facts or theological treaties or a philosophical proposition. What we have said here now and in this series has been said as an invitation. It's been all one big invitation. A wedding feast is going to happen. And it's going to happen when Jesus, the divine warrior, returns in all his glory. And how will you, RSVP, how will you reply? If you're not a follower of Jesus, let me plead with you today. Trust in Jesus. This invitation to throw yourself upon the gentle mercy of Jesus isn't just for you still figuring out if Jesus is for you. It's not just for you who are exploring Christianity, exploring following Christ. This invitation to throw ourselves upon the gentle mercy of Jesus is for every single one of us. It's for all of us. I, I want to end this sermon and this series by quoting one last time from Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly. And this is how Dane ends the book when he is asked, what is the application of all of this? All that you said about Jesus, what, what do we do with this? And Dane Ortland writes this, Go to him. Go to him. All that means is open yourself up to him. Let him love you. The Christian life boils down to two steps. And I love this. One, go to Jesus. Two, see number one. Whatever is crumbling all around you in your life, wherever you feel stuck, this remains undeflectable. His heart for you, the real you, is gentle and lowly. So go to him. That place in your life where you feel most defeated, he is there. He lives there, right there. And his heart for you, not on the other side of it, but in that darkness, is gentle and lowly. Your anguish is his home. Go to him. And then uh, Ortland quotes Thomas Goodwin, an old, an old Puritan author, by saying, If you knew his heart, you would. Christ said, East Vancouver. What is the application of this entire series? Go to Jesus. Beautiful, glorious, gentle, and lowly, the conquering king, the divine warrior. Go to Jesus. Let's pray together. So Jesus, we go to you together as a community this morning. And we throw ourselves upon you. We throw ourselves upon your mercy and your grace. And we want to be among those who are found to be feasting at the marriage supper of the Lamb at the end of the age when you return to judge the living and the dead and indeed to make all things new. And I pray for those who are listening right now who don't know you. I pray that they too would go to you. That they for the first time would go to you.
We pray this in your name. Amen.